welcome to Spiritual Wanderlust, where we explore our interior life in search of the sacred. Many of us will travel the whole world to find ourselves, but here we'll follow those longings within to our spiritual and emotional landscapes. In each episode, we'll talk with inspiring guests, contemplative teachers, embodiment experts, neuropsychologists, and mystics. With a blend of ancient wisdom and modern science, along with a healthy dash of mischief, we'll deep dive into divine intimacy and what it means to be whole. I'm your host, Kelly Deutsch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Spiritual Wanderlust podcast. I'm Kelly Deutsch. And today we are going to do something a little different. Normally on our episodes, I do most of the question asking, but today our frequent guest, Carl Thenis, has offered to interview me. So Carl is a fellow spiritual adventurer and also offers spiritual direction here at Spiritual Wanderlust. So together we're going to discuss some of our favorite themes like mysticism, longing, contemplative practice, inner work, and everything in between. So, Carl, thanks so much for joining us and for hosting us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure being here with you, Kelly. Um, and I, you know, these kinds of conversations are uh, very life-giving to me. And I think it's important for people to be able to get together and to talk about, um, you know, their life at, at deep, you know, deep enough levels for it to really resonate with themselves and then with, with each other. I think there's a lot of uh, communion that we can have together uh, when we talk about these kinds of topics. So um, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, one question I guess I had is just right out of the gate, like uh, in your podcast series on mysticism, um, you had a really nice way of frame, uh, kind of phrasing um, kind of what it's about. And you said that it's um, the search for and the experience of divine union. Um, and I, I like the fact that you broke those two pieces together, the searching um, and the experience of. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, kind of what that what divine union is, maybe, first of all. Um, and then second of all, what you were thinking of when you were thinking of both the searching and the experience pieces. Yeah, great questions. Um, I'm writing so I don't forget any piece of it. Divine union, search and experience of. So divine union is such a huge topic, right? <laughs> and really that's one of the motivating factors for having these conversations is I feel like it's this really well-kept secret of Christianity, that this is like the whole point of the entire religion, but somehow it gets lost in translation. And I'm like, whoever hears about that, like, you know, whether it's in a Sunday pew or even just, you know, reading the Bible, they don't say it in those terms. You know, there are certainly places in scripture that talk about like Jesus and the father and I are one and you are one and me and I and you and you and me. Um, but what does that actually look like? Because as you grow deeper in in prayer and in um, this relationship with the divine, whether it is specifically through Christianity and through Jesus and you know that kind of traditional language, or you know in a much more um, kind of human sense of like connected with all that is, um, divine union is willing what God wills, wanting what God wants, um, and being transformed in such a profound way that there almost seems to be no difference between you and the divine. And I think a lot of us intuit that naturally, like I know that God is a part of me, I am a part of God or God dwells in me. But when we're so transformed and we think of, you know, amazing examples of that, whether it's like Thich Nhat Hanh or Gandhi or Mother Teresa or, you know, any of these models that we hold up, we see how incredible their lives are because they've allowed themselves to be transformed so deeply and I that's a very um insufficient answer to what divine union is but I hope that through our series of conversations that we get to dance around it a bit more because that's that's one of the reasons why I think this has become such a well-kept secret is because it's so ineffable and the saints who do experience it the people who come back <laughs> they don't know how to speak about it either. You know, they write poetry or music or try to paint a painting. Um, you know, Thomas Aquinas, who wrote tomes and tomes and tomes of theology at the end of his life was purported to say like, it's all straw. You know, he wanted to burn everything he had written because he's like, what do all these words have to do with this reality I just experienced? 
So I suppose that's, you know, what leads us into that definition of, of mysticism as the search for and experience of divine union. Because right. it's, it's this dynamic of the already but not yet. Like we, we taste it like, oh my gosh, what was that? And so then it, it sets off this longing for so much more. Um, and so that in and of itself is already part of the mystical path. It's not like we have to go, I think a lot of people have this misconception that mysticism or divine union is like just all ecstasies, you know, like I'm levitating like Teresa of Avila or some of the other, you know, saints and mystics. And that certainly can be, but any of those mystics themselves would say like, that's not the important stuff. Like, don't pay attention to that. Like real holiness or union with God is doing God's will. So what does that look like in your daily life? It can be in the normal humdrum. I mean, we were just talking about, I've been dealing with some illness and that's, that's part of divine union too. Just saying yes to whatever's being plopped in your lap. Like, okay, I have been in bed for a whole week. Part of me gets really pissed about that. And then I have to go back into like, okay, this is what I'm being given. This is my invitation to divine union right now, saying yes to however God is showing up in my life. So search for, I'm longing for that all the time. I think a lot of us have had that um, thirst light us up. Um, and then we also have those experiences of it where either in that wonderful beatific blissful sense of we feel so close to God and in union and oneness with all things, or it can also be in, in the difficult, it's in the crucifixion, the suffering. And I know we'll get into that more later as well. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. And, and I, maybe that's one of the benefits of kind of the mystical life, right? Is that it sounds so, um, you know, otherworldly or, or kind of unattainable or strange, but the way you're describing it, right, it's in, it's in everything, right? It's in the joy and the wonder that we have when we're playing with our children or we're looking at a sunset um, or we're captivated by a particular, you know, beautiful piece of music, for example, but it's also in the dark parts. Um, and um, so, yeah, I mean, that sense of accepting the suffering of our life. Um, tell me a little bit more maybe about kind of what you're seeing in that space in terms of, you know, suffering, right? I think it, suffering is such a hard topic. I think in particularly in Christian circles, um, it's not always, you know, strangely, right? We, I mean, from a Christian point of view, uh, our Savior accepted suffering, right? Um, and suffering was was something that he redeemed. And so the fact that we don't always talk about that as a pathway to mm. divine union is, is, is kind of paradoxically shocking in, in a certain kind of way, um, right? Where our faith is not just um, an ever progressive kind of uh, evolution and, and positive sort of experience, right? It, it, it requires us to, um, you know, to fall down and then to get back up um, and to, to accept, right, the, the brokenness of our life the way it is, because, right, clearly, I mean, things are not the way any of us would really want them. <laughs> um, and there's always things that to be improved. And so to live in that ambiguity, I think, um, and to me, in some ways, is the mystical life, maybe. So mm. I'm curious, um, one of the things I think you talked about in your mysticism series, too, was, um, was detachment. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about kind of um, how you're thinking of that word and how does that play into the, the mystical life? Mm -hmm. So much there. <laughs> Let me sit with that a moment. Um, let me start with the, uh, just a note on suffering. Um, since you brought that up, and I feel like that's such a huge question and something we can certainly get um, more in depth into later as well. Um, there are so many mystics who talk about the cross as their wedding bed, which sounds pretty mind-blowing. <laughs> like, what in the world does that even mean? But when we recognize that holiness, union, whatever word you want to use is saying yes to whatever God is giving you. And that I, I love talking about, I did in that series as well, talking about um, the contemplative stances like that fiat or that Marian stance that, that Mary took of saying, yes, whatever, whatever you send me. And that, that really is, as you were saying, like that's part of living in the ambiguity and that's part of detachment as well is being able to go from like this clenching, grasping kind of gesture into something that is much more open palmed before reality and says, 
okay, yes to this as well, even though it might be really uncomfortable, you know, and even just the small inconveniences, being able to say like, yes to those, whatever, getting stuck in traffic on my way to Portland, and oh, I hate traffic, you know, and instead of like yeah. catching myself in that response and saying like, okay, can I just notice that I have volcanoes all around me right now? <laughs> you know, like, this is mind blowing. Um, so it's like in the little things, but also those big things, whether it's health or losing a loved one or just life being turned upside down by the pandemic and all of these things, these are the things that really stretch us. And so that's one of the ways that, that um, you know, in, in the Christian East, your own tradition, you know, calling that kenosis, it's kenosis leads to theosis, right? That's kind of our core thesis here is, that, that crucifixion leads to resurrection and transformation. So all of that suffering can be a really good and beautiful thing when we allow it to not just break us apart, but break us open into this kind of open-handed stance. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Not apart, but open, right? Vulnerable. Um, one of the things I, I remember, I think it was either in your book or in one of your podcasts, you talked about um, using surfing as an analogy, right, for accepting, like when, in terms of accepting, right, your life as it comes to you, um, because, right, um, you know, from a, uh, an addiction recovery perspective in AA, right, we talk about um, the, um, you know, you have to accept things, right, as they are, accepting life on life's terms. Um, and that's an ex extraordinarily difficult thing to do for most people. And I think in some ways, maybe the mystical life is, is learning how to do that uh, with ever you know, deeper levels of grace and forgiveness, not only for yourself, for, but for the people around you. And um, when you brought up surfing in that context, I uh, was reminded of C.S. Lewis in uh, the book Paralandria, right, where he talks about the, the lady in the book talks about how, right, she's learned to accept uh, the waves that have that come to her, right, and that to, that whether to drown in them or whether to ride, rise above them is is a delight either way, and so to have that um, detachment, right, from the from the outcome, not wanting the wave to do any particular thing other than to be itself, uh, you know, in the story at least gives her the freedom, right, to be herself in it, mm. um, and it also reminded me a little bit of like Psalm, I think it's Psalm eighty eight, where it talks about like your waves have washed over me, right. Um, and that ties into suffering too, right? Because the waves of our life sometimes are buoyant and beautiful, right? And they, they're, they're beautiful, but often they're, uh, you know, tumultuous and, and full, fulfilled with all kinds of things that are scary, you know? Um, so that kind of leads me into another question. I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about fear, um, partly because it's something that I've, you know, struggled with um, in my life and in sobriety and just in the spiritual life of just as you unpack, right, the things in your life that are getting in the way of you being your best self, um, and of being open to, to, you know, divine union, there's so much fear in us, right? Fear of uh, the things that we know we should do or think we should do, the fear of other people, the fear of our circumstances. Um, and I wanted to hear a little bit kind of a, how fear fits into the mystical life. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. What immediately comes to mind for me is um, just how our interior life works. And I, I love using this framework. I can't, I, have we talked before about IFS, internal family systems? I can't remember. I think so. I love IFS. Okay. I think it's yeah. amazing. So good. I, I really love using that as a model of the interior life because it, it, in the bare essence of things, it just says we have a multiplicity of parts inside of us. You know, you can think of it as like, we have all nine types on the Enneagram. We have all these archetypes. We have all, you know, we all have like, we have our people pleasing part and we have our inner critic and we have like our nurturing, caring part. And, you know, we all have these various parts, but we develop them, you know, as a way to adapt and cope with life, like both the good and the bad. And for me, being able to dialogue with each of those parts and seeing why sometimes they get turned up so loud you know, like if you want to use the Enneagram, for example, um, a lot of us, I'll say women in particular, but a lot of us in general, I think have trouble having a healthy eight kind of part, you know, a part that is assertive yes. and can stand up for ourselves and do what is right and things. Um, if an eight part gets turned up too loud, you know, it can like rage and be like really just obstinate and in your face and it can be really obnoxious. But a really healthy eight part actually is really important to be able to set healthy boundaries and just say like, well, this is just 
what we got to do, folks. Um, so for me, I know this is kind of a long roundabout way of answering the question, but for me, it's looking at these various tendencies we have, whether it's like my eight part explodes or I have like a two-ish part that is so people pleasing and just can't stand up for myself or, you know, whatever it is to be able to dialogue with each of those parts of me and say like, what are you really afraid of under there? Like, what are you afraid is going to happen if you don't please these people? Or if you don't use this method of like exploding and raging against the night or against whatever it is, you know, that um, feels like is such a crazy injustice, you know, mm -hmm. what might be another tool? And so for me, fear is fear is something that we all have because we've all, I mean, we live in a very um, imperfect world. And so there are going to be things that, um, trigger us, hurt us, wound us, traumatize us. Um, and finding ways to engage with those parts of us and not disown them and say like, no, I can't rage, but say like, okay, I see this as part of me. I mean, it's all like doing shadow work, right? Mm -hmm. Being able to recognize these parts, like that is me too. Like I can look around and say, everything that is human is not alien to me, is the right. paraphrase of Terence, I believe. Um, you know, and to be able to recognize, you know, a serial killer or, you know, the president that I don't particularly like at any given point in time or, you know, whatever, Putin, whoever it is, to be able to say, like, there but for the grace of God go I. Like, I am capable of all things that are human, both the negative, the dark, and the light. And I think it's important to be able to bring all of those home to ourselves, both so we can have compassion for ourselves and work through those parts of us that have such fear, which leads to the extreme behaviors, but also have such more compassion for those around us and, you know, why others are doing things that seem so incomprehensible to us. Right. Yeah, for sure. Um, you mentioned tools. Um, and I was thinking, too, that I think, you know, it's hard, I think, too, when you think about like mysticism or the mystical life or the contemplative life um, or even just the spiritual life in many ways. Um, it's hard to to put a boundary around what that even is. And so, um, you know, I think you had mentioned at one point talking about um, finding your practice, right? And so I was curious, like, if you could talk a little bit maybe about what some of, maybe some of your practices, but just in general, um, you know, if somebody was gonna ask, you know, well, how do I get started or what should I do, right? And, and we tend to be a very pragmatic culture and we like, we like checklists and learning how to divest yourself of the addiction to those. It's, Part of the mystical life, but you know, you get there eventually, right? But, right, but it's, I think, but but in a more serious way, it's also nice to have, right? A sense you have to have a sense of grounding, um, partly because we're embodied creatures, right? And we live in the world, and we have to. And if we're going to be present to it, it means we have to be here. Um, and so the ways in which we can be present, I think, take form, right? In very specific practices, whether those are, you know, prayer or services or, or whatever. So I was curious if you could talk a little bit about maybe practices that you've um, done that seem to help, maybe practices that had worked for a while and maybe didn't, um, and just in general, kind of how that, how that evolves over time as you're leaning into this. Sure, absolutely. So um, one of my favorite spiritual directors that I ever had, um, I, I might have said this in the videos before, um, he told me the best prayer is the prayer you can pray. And I love that. <laughs> so, true. Um, so when people ask me, you know, like, where should I get started? You know, or, or oftentimes people will come to spiritual direction and feel really anxious that they can't meditate or, you know, do centering prayer. Or like I'm trying to do my two 20 minute sits every day and I just can't get myself to calm down. I'm like, okay, okay, let's take a step back. <laughs> take a breath. <laughs> where do you feel most connected to God? Where do you feel most grounded? That's where I always recommend people begin. Like take a moment to consider that. Like, is it having your coffee quietly in the morning? Is it taking a walk on the trail somewhere? Is it, you know, I have one woman who loves horseback riding. That's like her thing. And that's wonderful. Like any of those things can be spiritual practices when they connect you to the divine. I think the key in any of those is then having the, again, that stance, that kind of Marian stance and that enough stillness so that you can notice when the spirit starts to tug you deeper. I think that's really that key. And it's so, um, it's so subtle at first, you know, that transition from meditation into contemplation, if we're in traditional Christian spiritual theology anyway. Um, 
meditation being much more of like a mental practice or something that you do. Like I'm going to, whether it's Lexio Divina, that's something that I loved for a while. I would just devour scripture. You know, I just love to meditate or sometimes, you know, just like a good, good spiritual reading. I, um, for example, there's this one book that I recommend to people frequently on John of the Cross. It's named Impact of God um, by Ian Matthews. And I remember the first time um, one of the sisters in the community that I was in recommended it to me. I picked it up and it like didn't really do anything for me. The second time that I picked it up, like a year later, I prayed with a table of contents for a week. <laughs> it was just those <laughs> words alone. I was like, oh, oh, <laughs> I just, ooh, I just need to stop and stay right here. And that, to me, whatever the, your practice is, whether it's walking out in nature or having your morning cup of coffee or just sitting and listening to music, to attend to those inner movements whenever you feel a slight tug and then just stop and stay. And it could be, you know, it might be 30 seconds and you're like, okay, like I'm going to move on again and play the music or, you know, whatever it is. Or it could be, you know, the rest of your half hour sit, you know, I mean, it's not up to us. Again, that's that surfing analogy. We're not, we're not in charge of how big these waves are, or whether or not they come. What we're, up, we're in charge of is just being attentive. Like, oh, I can feel the swell. I better start paddling. <laughs> See how long I can ride this um, so that we can have that same um, receptivity and um, sensitivity in a sense um, to, to divine movements. And so I've, I've used a wide variety of spiritual practices in my lifetime. Um, as you kind of insinuated there, there are definitely um, chapters where some work really well. And then after a while, it's like, yeah, that doesn't do anything for me anymore. Like, I used mm -hmm. to love the rosary. Oh man, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. just, I would do laps around that thing, you know, meditating on the life of Christ. Or sometimes I'd like just insert my own kind of mysteries of the rosary um, or yeah, when I was ill, one of my um, good monk friends made me a, um, a chakki, like, and just mm -hmm. another kind of prayer rope. And that I felt like was what was like pulling me out of the pit of despair. I'm like <laughs> holding on to my chakki with dear yes. life, you know? Um, so those have been helpful practices. Now I feel like any, any words don't really do a whole lot for me. I just want to sit in silence. You know, and so I might lie in the grass and soak up the sky or spend the first 20 minutes when I wake up in the morning, just being still lying in my bed. Um, even just like sitting with my cat, and just being, you know, my, my daily nap, you know, is I remember when I described it to someone, you know, I was like, I don't always actually fall asleep, but it's just, you know, time, enough for my body to kind of just <sighs> exhale. She was like, so you mean meditation? Is that what you're actually doing? <laughs> well, I suppose I, I, I tend not to use the word meditation because I think a lot of people, you know, think of a very specific thing. Like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to pay attention to my breath. I'm not going to try to let go of all my thoughts. Let go. But it's, there's so <laughs> yeah, much trying. Yeah. <laughs> right. it, there's still, yeah, it's kind of that whole paradox of you know, trying to make your ego defeat your own ego or something. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it's much easier for me to just um, have a time to just be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know for me, you know, in, in the recovery movement, right, there's a very big emphasis on developing new practices and new habits, um, right, to start to rebuild the life that in many ways you've destroyed by your addiction. Um Right. And so you have to relearn a lot of patterns of just how to function in the world, right, without the crutch um, of your addiction. Um, and one of the things that that I personally have found, and I think this is, you know, pretty you know, fairly true for, for most people in that scenario, is that um, it's difficult to do that without a community or without, right, a larger group of people, which, in we, again, in a strange paradoxical kind of way, is that when most, if you ask most people, what do you think of when you hear the, the mystical life or mysticism, right? To your point, right? There's this idea that it's just you in a room silently meditating or, or doing something quiet, right? By yourself. There's a very individual kind of nature to that. But that doesn't seem to be true at all if you read the lives of the saints or, um, you know, or really of anybody, right, who has achieved some level of spiritual maturity is that, yes, they may live their life and have practices, right, that are very, you know, solitary, maybe, let's say. 
Um, but but they're not they're not disconnected from anyone. And in fact, right, those practices may in fact you know make them more connected to people um, at at a much deeper level. But then even practically, again, right, having a community of people around you, um, and whether again whether that's a church or AA or right or whatever, right, they're they're need, it's almost like it's an essential element of what it means to be um, somebody who <laughs> wants to live a mystical life. Is again, you need people around you. So. I was curious, you know, you've lived in, you've been a nun and you've lived in a convent and you, you know, you're recently married and right, you've had a number of different kind of uh, living arrangements and different structures in your life. And I was curious if you could uh, share maybe a little bit about what you've learned maybe in communities um, as it relates to the mystical life. Mm-hmm. Great question. Uh, community living, I find, and I, I'm pretty sure this is why, you know, a lot of mystics and the church itself teaches this is such an important part of the spiritual life. Um, community life is really where you learn virtue. And that's where the rubber hits the road. So you might have these wonderful ecstatic experiences in prayer, but if you walk out, you know, or like your son interrupts you and you're like, shut up, I'm meditating, you know, <laughs> like, clearly yeah. there's some sort of disconnect there. Like, okay, if I am not becoming a more patient kind, compassionate, all embracing and welcoming and hospitable and, and also courageous and bold, or, you know, like if I'm not growing in virtue, then I'm not growing in holiness. I'm not becoming a more spiritually mature person. And so community is really where all of that gets hammered out because I mean, one of my close friends was like, Kelly, you know, I used to believe I was so holy and then I got married and had kids. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, oh man, you know, I am just constantly failing. And that's, you know, kind of looping back to what we were talking about before, the the suffering, the failures, those are so much of where all of this spiritual life is hashed out, is in all of the the difficulties and the day-to-day kind of sandpaper of our lives that isn't always very comfortable. Um, when you just have difficult personalities or you're tired, everybody's tired, your kids are tired, your spouse is tired. And, you know, um, Mm -hmm. even in the convent, you know, it's very easy for people to think like, oh, well, monks and nuns, you know, I mean, they've dedicated their whole life to prayer. So clearly, you know, they must all be very (laughs) holy. And no, (laughs) we're so very human, you know, and it, there was, there's so much dysfunction and, and monasteries and convents, you know, they might not air their dirty laundry out into the public, nor is it always appropriate, but you know, they're still very human. We all bring our baggage with us. Mm-hmm. And so using those opportunities, um, just the image that comes to mind was um, me in Rome. And I remember I was talking to a friend of mine who was in another community. Um, and I was venting about one of my sisters and like sister so-and-so said this to me and then she did and can you believe and I was just like venting and fuming and this other friend of mine turned to me and she's like what about you get so riled up by that and I was like <laughs> I was so taken aback <laughs> you know it's just like excuse me can't you see how obnoxious she was being you know but I mean essentially she was saying like Kelly it takes two to tango mm-hmm. you know like yes, that she did something, but like, why is it eliciting such a strong response in you? What in you is happening? And, you know, that goes back to that, that IFS, that parts work. Mm-hmm. Like, what is being triggered in me? Okay. So I feel outraged. Why? What is this part trying to tell me? What is it trying to protect me from? You know, and just doing a little more of that digging and spiraling down, like what's going on under here? And so community life provides a marvelous opportunity for that, which is one of the reasons why it's so good to be surrounded by people who aren't exactly like you, you know, which is what most like church or even support group, any kind of situation is that these are like, I can't remember if it was some author, like maybe it was Graham Greene. Someone said Catholicism is here comes everyone. Oh yeah, right. I love that definition. It was like, Oh yeah, we got everybody here. Like we're all broken in our various ways, glorious in our various ways, but you throw us all together and understandably our jagged edges are gonna catch on each other. So to me, that's one of the biggest roles of community life and and also one of the greatest gifts because you get to learn from each other in places that um, aren't your natural strengths. Right, for sure. Yeah. 
so that leads me actually to another question. Um, when we talk about like being a community and and learning from one another, um, you know, and this is something that people like Brownie Brown and, and other people talk about, it's the like the central importance of curiosity, mm. right, in the vulnerable life um, or the mystical life, even the spiritual life. Um, and, um, you know, I think one of the things that I've noticed in just in my life and I think in, you know, the people around me and just I think in society, right, is that and whether it's smartphones or whether it's just the state of the world or, or whatever, it's hard to know even really there's so many factors, but being curious about other people, right, and, and whether it's doing work like IFS um, or just inner work in general, <clears throat> right, if you're going to be in a state where you're open and accepting of life as it comes to you. Um, it, that takes a certain, like, right, like an, your aperture, the aperture of your soul has to be open, right? And that, that's a courageous stance to, to do that, right? To, to invite the world in. It's like the cross, essentially, right? You're, you're basically here mm -hmm. in this moment, right? Horizontal and vertical, you're connected to reality and you're, and you're looking mm -hmm. up to God and you're, you're looking for that divine union, right? But to do that takes a certain level of openness and, um, you know, cultivating that kind of curiosity feels like a, in many cases can be a, a real suffering, right is to be that that open um and i know that you know some of the work that i've done in in recovery and and working with addicts and and just in general is that um that's almost impossible to do um without a guide or without help and again right the community that you live in whether that's a marriage or or a convent or just right your church or whatever right that's absolutely essential and can provide some of that right but there seems to be also a, the need to have some more of a like a deeper um you know, uh, somebody who soul walks with you right through your life, who can help point out um, areas where, you know, it's very easy to walk off the edge of the cliff as you do this work. Um, and actually, that reminds me, there's a quote from uh, St. Isaac, the Syrian and Eastern uh, saint who uh, said that if you're going, and this is a paraphrase and, and obviously a translation, it'd be interesting to know what it was in the original, but um, he said something along the lines of, if you're, if you're going to do, if you're going to walk the spiritual path, if you're going to do the spiritual life, then you need to be prepared for the stench. <clears throat> right. And the idea is that, right, as you excavate the things that are getting in the way um, of that, being able to be filled with wonder or being able to accept the sufferings of your life, that, that you're going to come up with, right, a whole host of different, uh, you know, sub-personalities or, yes. or just like the broken edges of your soul that are going to, like, you know, grate at you as you do that. So this is a long-winded question, I guess. But um, I'm, I'm curious. I have found a lot of benefit personally in terms of having, let's say, an AA sponsor um, or a spiritual father or a spiritual director or all three sometimes mm -hmm. at the same time, right? It takes a, a community sometimes of guides to really help you. Um, and, you know, I think that's, um, it's hard for us, I think, sometimes to accept that, that, that we need that, right? Mm -hmm. And also to trust people enough to, to invite them in. Um, so I was curious what your experience has been or what you would say in terms of the necessity of guides in the spiritual life or in the mystical life yes yes first of all great quote <laughs> love that yep there's a lot of stench inside um <laughs> for all of us you know i mean it's regardless of who we are we all have have some dark areas that haven't been turned over in a while um but yeah i find it absolutely critical to have somebody to hold your hand and what i find interesting is how um there are different people who feel appropriate at different stages in life. And you've, I'm guessing you've experienced this as well, whether it's, you know, mm -hmm. a different sponsor or you know, therapist, spiritual guide, whoever it is that are meant to walk with you for certain stages. And then, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's through life circumstance or it's just, you know, I had one sister that I worked with for a few years and she was like, I feel like I've come to the end of what I can walk with you on. I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, thank you for being honest. Like, <laughs> all right. Um, but I find it so helpful in pointing out a lot of those blind spots or some of those dark areas inside that you kind of forgot existed, you know, so they might be able to walk in. I mean, it kind of reminds me of um, like when you walk into your grandparents' house and there's like a little bit of that weird sour smell, you know, and like they've been living there so long, they don't even notice it anymore. But you walk in, you're like, oh, that's a little off. <laughs> like, I don't know if something needs cleaning or, you know, check something out. I feel like that's almost what, you know, a good spiritual director or companion or guide does is walks in and you've kind of gotten used to that stench. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like if somebody walks in, it's like, hmm, that's a little off. Like, should we go excavating a little bit? And we're like, no, I don't smell anything. I think we're fine. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. like, don't right. worry about it. <laughs> um, but there have been plenty of times, whether a therapist or a spiritual director or a coach 
has, you know, pointed something out or asked the tough question that I really needed to hear, but maybe didn't want to. Um, you know, I, I can think of one example um, when my spiritual director in Rome, um, I had just, I think it was also at this, around the same time that I was introduced to the Enneagram. And um, at the time I tested, I came out as a two because I was formed to be a two in Rome because isn't that every good nun? Um, and, and there's a lot, I had certainly have plenty of two-ish energy, but I remember um, my spiritual director asking me um, something about like this desire to serve other people, you know, and it felt like it came out of a very genuine place. And he's like, do you think there's anything self-serving in that? Like, do you get anything out of serving other people? I remember being taken a little aback, like, <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I don't, I don't think so. Like, I think it's just a genuine, like, you know, desire to give back. And, you know, and I was like, oh, and he was like, okay. Then he just left it at that. And it took me a good six months to come back and be like, oh yeah, no, I, I definitely get something out of that. It makes me feel like a good person. <laughs> like that if I can't do that, like something in my ego is like, oh my gosh, am I good? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, it's questions like that, that we sometimes need others to posit for us because they don't occur to us ourselves. So yeah. having someone on the outside who can, who could smell those smells and point things out and see things that we can't see, uh, can be absolutely invaluable in your own growth and development. Yeah. Although you have to want the answer, you know, to your point, right? Sometimes you're not ready to hear <laughs> the answer or you hear it, but only on a certain level of consciousness. Um, you know, and then these truths that, that we're searching for, right? Or the longing that we talk about in the mystical life. Um, it can never be fulfilled if what we're really after is, is the divine, right? Because by definition, the divine is infinite. Um, and so we're, we're like, and that goes back to what your, your first definition in terms of the search and the experience, kind of that dance between the, the here, but not yet. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes explanations don't help or, or all people can do is point you, you know, I was thinking of like Philip and Nathaniel, you know, how can anything good come out of Nazareth? And his response is, look, I'm not going to explain this to you. <laughs> right. Just come and see. Right. Yeah. And so that invitation, right. To join right, to be a participant in, again, going back to that experience thing, mm -hmm. uh, is just so invaluable. But, but, but it's hard, I think, sometimes when um, we're dancing between the wanting to fulfill our longings, but we're also, again, going back to fear, we're afraid of what that would either cost us, right, um, or, or maybe even a little bit of a doubt that we'll get what we want, and then, that, and then it'll be like, now what, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a, again, it's that strange relationship that we have with God, where he's always wooing us forward, um, you know, and giving us a little foretaste that we can bear, right? Um, and I think for me, I think one of the things I was thinking about the mystical life is that, again, it's like that sense of openness, right? That we're containers, we're earthen vessels, right? As St. Paul says, and we're, we're, we're never, we can't contain, right? The grace that, that God has by nature, but we can definitely participate in it. Um, but we have to be willing, right? To, to allow our container to be big enough so that, right? So that what we want or that longing or that desire that we have, um, can at least have some sense of consummation or fulfillment. Um, and so, yeah, I was, the other thing I was thinking too, is that the Greek word perichoresis, the circle dance, right. With some of the church fathers, that was their way of describing the Trinity. Right. And, and so again, it's that sense of, um, and when, when we're talking about the mystical life, either in your, on your own, you know, doing your own work or in a community or with a guide who's helping you in all of those cases, right. There's that dance of, again, right. We're drilling deeper and deeper in, we're giving more and more of ourselves. We're, we're able to hear the truths of the people around us who are saying things. And I think it was, was it Dostoevsky or Nietzsche? I can't remember. One of them said something along the lines of that. Uh, you can tell the character of a man by how much truth he's willing to tolerate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And and I thought a lot about that quote being a real, like a real distillation essentially of the mystical life. Um, right. That there's always more truths and most of them are exceptionally painful, right. To actually really take in, um, but again, wanting, wanting that, that sense of desire. Um, so, and so I guess that leads me to a question. Um, from a, like a longing perspective, um, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? How do we, um, how do we accept, let's say, the fact that our longing and our desire is either misplaced or not as much high, or it's not maybe what it should be or it could be, um, but also doing things to keep it moving, Right. And I think, again, like you can get stuck. And again, from an addiction point of view, right, 
having desires and longings that you're not addressing, right? Have, have ways of leaking out into your life, right? So that you're then attracted to idols or you're attracted to ideologies or substances or anything, right? Mm -hmm. That can fulfill that longing. Um, but you don't want to kill that part of you either. You know, and I see that a lot in addiction work where there's a, a temptation, especially early on to just crush mm -hmm. the desiring aspect of the soul that, that was looking for thing, looking for God in places that shouldn't, right? Um, and so, and that's what we would call like a dry drunk, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's not what you just, you amputate essentially a part of yourself. And sometimes that's necessary maybe when very dire, you know, scenarios. Um, but um, anyway, I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are on desire maybe and how we, mm -hmm. work, how we move through that. Yeah. Longing is hard because it is like, it's just this, it's like exquisite and wonderful, but also like exquisitely painful at the same time. And it is so hard to sit in, you know, and I think that's, you know, why you have so many poets from every world religion that talks about getting drunk on love and this kind of, and like drunk on Eros in particular, like that's how I like to talk about longing is this, this Eros is like a fire. It's like what moves the stars in the heavens. And understandably, when you have that kind of jet fuel, like inside of your very soul, no wonder it's so potent, you know, and it's so difficult to, um, like, I don't know, it's, it's like being in a car, like you're in a race car, and somebody is revving the engine, but hasn't thrown in the clutch yet, you know, and you're like, Oh, my <laughs> yeah. gosh, it's just so potent that we don't, we're like, I think I might die if I don't have some sort of like, release outlet for this. I don't like, what do I do with this? And so I think it is very easy to to turn that toward created things, as Augustine would talk about, like whatever those things are. I mean, and it can be your typical addictions, you know, that we're used to thinking of, like, okay, drugs and alcohol and pornography and whatever, but it, it's so easily other things. Like how many of us are addicted to control? I think a hundred percent, you know yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, it's so easy to, I mean, when things feel out of control that's the one thing we want to do is like grasp some sort of control and you know even if it's just like i need to clean my house and organize everything or i need to you know start bossing my kids around more than maybe is really necessary or or my spouse or you know take control of things at work um so i think it's very easy to do that the key then is really to pause so much so much is in the pause you know when we are able to stop in the midst of a reaction and say whoa time out what's going on here and sometimes it's hard to do in the exact moment but even if you know doing an examine at the end of the day we can review our day a little bit and just see like examine our reactions like what was going on there or you know if you want to go with the more traditional addictions like okay i really wanted to drink this afternoon like okay what happened like immediately preceding that mm -hmm. and to be able to start walking through those things like okay what was I actually longing for like what was my discomfort was I looking for you know some sense of release was I you know really anxious and I just need something to take my mind off and numb out is it like to start doing that spiraling down and looking underneath and that's where all of that inner work comes in whether you're doing it on your own or with someone else is to really examine what's underneath all of our um, smaller longings that are pointing to something greater right I like that phrase, the leaning into the pause. That's a really, mm -hmm. that's a beautiful one. So hard to do <laughs> though, right? To to live, to accept the silence of that moment. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Like, what I'm a relief sure you... though. Okay. Yeah. No, I was gonna say what a relief it is though, especially yes. if you're addicted to control, right? Or if you want, if you desire a certain outcome based on your current, you know, state, um, usually we don't want what we really, what we really want is something different than what we think we do. Right, uh, exactly. Right? And the pause at least gives enough space. And I know a lot of the, you know, desert fathers and, and mystics and saints of the church talk about, right, like there's a sense in which you, the, you know, the thoughts that precede the action, right, there's a sequence, there's a spiritual sort of progression mm -hmm. that happens from initial, like stimulus, let's say, <clears throat> which of course comes to us and we don't have any 
say over that, right? I mean, the world is just there, right? And we're present to it and there's nothing wrong with that, right? And so again, that's why a, a contemplative practice that is allowing the thoughts, let's say, to go to, you know, go down the river and you notice them and you say, you know, hello, <laughs> maybe if you're lucky, and then you just let them go, right? You don't have that. You let the pause of that, of their movement move through you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not attached to them. But um, but again, that most of us, right, are like the stimulus and then the response is so fast that something happens and we're yelling at our kids or we're snapping at our spouse or we're immediately judgmental. And I think, you know, being judgmental is probably one of the biggest ones that we all share, mm-hmm. um, right, is that we have all these preconceived ideas about the way the world should be and what it is and what our response should be. And we don't even take, we don't have practices that help us take a second, right, or even a half a second and just sit with something and let it be what it is. And um, mm-hmm. I think we talked before about, you know, from an addiction point of view, letting reality be what it is, is exceptionally difficult if you're, if you're an addict, um, because you want it to be different, probably better. I mean, maybe you're right about that, but um, mm-hmm. yeah, if you don't have that sense of pause or that practice of learning to pause <clears throat> so that you can just accept things as they are first, right? And right. love them as they are, which, which is funny because that's what we want from God, right? <laughs> we, right, we want unconditional love and, and, and he promises that to us, right? But if you think about it from his point of view, practically, one of the ways he does that is that he stays silent. He lets the pause of where we're at be where he is, right? And sometimes people will say, well, why don't I hear God? Or why isn't he here? Or why isn't it more obvious that there's, you know, and the reason is that you're not listening, <laughs> right? He's there, you're not taking enough time, right? Or you're not, you're not actually quiet enough to, mm-hmm. to be present. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with that Viktor Frankl quote, you know, that between stimulus and response, there is a gap. And in that yes. gap lies our freedom, you know, and I love, I mean, I quote that whether I'm talking in spiritual direction or I'm talking in like corporate boardrooms and doing trainings on leadership, you know, because sure. so much is, you know, it's like, mind the gap, people. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like this is, if you've ever been over to England, you know, and you go into the tube or something in London, you'll hear when you're getting off the, like, the gap, and they're always like, mind the gap. And that's every, that's always what I have echoing in my head, um, is to just mind the gap between whatever is coming at you, whether it's like, I, I remember once, um, one, I, I think it might have been my, my very first niece, um, that's who it was it doesn't matter um she spilled something on the floor spilled her juice let's say and my sister her mom like my immediate response is like what I learned as a kid is you freak out like oh my gosh you spilled the juice like now we have a mess can you be more careful you know like that's what's like immediately comes up in my head but that's not what my sister said my sister instead was like oopsie daisy let's get a paper towel and my jaw just dropped I was like (laughs) Like, that's even an option? Like, I didn't even realize that was an option. (laughs) And um, sometimes we need other kinds of responses modeled for us to stop us in our tracks Mm. like that and say, like, oh, there's no possibility here. Like, I don't have to go with that learned reaction. That's, you know, the neural pathway that I'm most used to because I saw that modeled the most in my life and have probably done it plenty myself. Um, But when we can see that there is another way and choose how we want to respond like oh my gosh what I mean that's why Viktor Frankl is so powerful to think of him in Mm -hmm. you know this concentration camp recognizing that we can be in the most dire and awful of circumstances but we can still choose our response and that's how he maintained his humanity and how many people survived and maintained some sense of humanity is by saying like okay you cannot take this from me my ability to choose Mm -hmm. how I want to respond that's right inviolate yeah yeah that's our last freedom (laughs) after all the other ones are taken but it's one that can never be taken away unless you choose to give it away right Um, right and yeah that's and that's the hard thing though right and i i remember hearing somebody talk to me once um about and this was in, in the context of sobriety and they were saying that one of the ways they stayed sober was they thought what would i do if i was in a concentration camp like how would i live right and so to you know you know victor franklin obviously has done an amazing job of outlining, right? Just mm-hmm. psychologically, practically how you go about doing that. But it's such a sobering thing to think through, um, right? Of who would I have to become, right? To not only endure that and to survive in just a, you know, bare bones kind of way, but how could I, how could things actually maybe be better? How could more of reality and more of God's love maybe even be more available to me? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, but that's hard work, right? And that's- <clears throat> Yes, I you know. know. Have you read um, Walter Chiswick? 
Um, he's no. Been, mm -hmm. um, oh, let me, He Leadeth Me is his first book and then With God in Russia. And he mm. um, was a priest who was um, captured and kept in solitary confinement in Russia um, for a long time. But like that to me, I mean, we talked a little bit about detachment before. He has just such a marvelous example. I mean, you want to talk about like someone showing you that there's another way to respond to reality. <laughs> like, oh man, mm -hmm. you know, when he was in solitary and he just was able to say like, okay, like kind of to like whatever was happening, which was just so mind blowing because at the beginning, you know, he was so concerned with like, okay, well, what's the right thing to do? And morally, like, for example, mm -hmm. they asked him to go undercover into the Vatican as a Russian spy. <laughs> and at the, in the moment he was like, I felt like I was supposed to say yes. So I did. You know, and he's like, I didn't like, I wasn't concerned about it. I just was like, this is where I feel called to go. And if this is what God wants me to do, he'll take care of it. And then it came like the day to leave and to actually go. And he was like, no, I'm not going. <laughs> he just ended up, you know, and he was like, I just had to respond to what I felt led to in the moment. And I knew I'd probably be punished for it, but that's what I needed to do. And he just had such a freedom and detachment about it man like if i could yeah. do that in my daily life right well and that's why we need to practice it in our daily life yes. right because we don't like who would you become if you were in that scenario is predicated on who you've been you know 10 years ago and last week mm -hmm. right like, and so for me I'd like and to uh, to bring up like ibs for a minute or um, uh -huh. IBS, right is that like i like to think too and this really helped me in sobriety was to think um you know, one thing is that you have to get out of yourself, right, and start to learn to to realize that other people matter and that you're not uh, you're not the only person who who matters. But um, but also just internally, right, that there's multiple versions of you, right. If you think of yourself, you take you know, if you step out for a minute, and you look at the, the uh, at your timeline of your life, is that there's as many versions of you as there are moments, right. And so there's a ton of versions of you in the future that are waiting for you today to become who you could be, right. And they're they're in some ways maybe praying for you. There's like a mystical element almost to your own personal life in that sense, um, right? And that if you get your the subpersonalities, let's say, uh, in the present moment aligned so that they're serving the highest good and that you're the the Christ self that's within you, right? That that truly is in communion with God, whether you know it or not, um, right? Is that is that version of you is the one that's starting to make, you know create the order uh, that's necessary for you to be a fully flourishing person then all of a sudden you're you're free right to, to to switch and change your decisions or to make better ones right and you're you're not compelled anymore by your environment or by your your programming or right so many things and then again that sense of riding the wave of your life as it comes to you becomes something it's not so difficult anymore if you have if you're out of your own way <laughs> right yes um, yes uh, yeah, that's why I love that um, image for IFS or your internal life of like yourself with capital S, your true self, Christ consciousness, whatever people want to call that, that divine spark is the orchestra conductor, you know, and all the mm -hmm. other parts are like playing these various instruments. But the problem is sometimes like the woodwinds stage a coup d'etat, you know, <laughs> they're just <laughs> like, we're taking over and we're going to, yes. you know, it's like, no, no, you're not in charge, actually. Like at this point in life, we need a little more strings, like violins, can we hear a little more from you woodwinds calm down okay you know and like it's the conductor who says you know and that's again in the moment like you don't have to these parts don't have to work so hard you know sometimes mm -hmm. I mean to go back to some of the examples we used before sometimes the people pleaser part of you is like really loud and you're like okay we need a little less of you right now I actually need my assertive part to stand up right now because mm -hmm. I need to hold right. a firm boundary you know yep. and so I'm like shh you over here I need you to calm down a little bit you do a great job when I need you, but now's not the time, <laughs> you know, like right. now's the night, yours time to shine, a sort of part, strings, whatever you are, but it makes it so much easier when you have that um, groundedness in, in your true self who can call those shots and decide which parts of you, you know, is meant to make this wonderful orchestra, this symphony um, right. Of your own life. Yeah. No, that's beautiful. I love that idea of the symphony. Yeah. Because, right, the harmony that we hear in music that is so compelling, right? And it's so transcendent and such a mystical experience, really, especially for music that particularly grips you, um, right? It's a participation in that dance, that perichoresis, right? The, mm -hmm. the dance of, of life as it is, right? I mean, it's, it's happening all around us, that music, um, the harmony of, of reality. Um, and again, it goes back to, you know, the acceptance of the things that are in your life and being willing to invite those uh, discordant sort of notes that we experience and to have them to invite them in right and, and to have them be part of it so that we're not 
the conductor, right, can't control the music, right? And if somebody makes an off note, you have to just roll with it and somehow find a way to, to you know, fit it into the overall structure. Um, and that takes a certain, right, um, detachment. And then, but also like loving acceptance, right? That the errors and the, the beauty can all, there's nothing that can, nothing's lost, right? Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're really centered on and grounded in who you are, the, the, there's nothing that, um, and that to me is, I mean, the, intu the uh, intuition, I think of that truth is the beginning of salvation, right? The trust that we can have in God that he, that, right? That at the end, all the tears will be wiped away yeah. and that all the sorrows of our life will, will not be, not only will not be for nothing, but they'll be part of the story in the same way that Thomas wanted to touch the hands inside of Jesus that, right? Even in his resurrected state, Christ still had his wounds and they were in fact what made him even more amazing right that it wasn't just some demigod or ghost or whatever it was their lord it was their their friend who was standing before them right and I think that's you know um and to just circle back I guess on suffering is that you know it may, there's probably a reason maybe that the mystical life is led by the people who have, who seem to have gone down that road so well are people who have so many wounds right that our wounds in, in many ways are our ticket um into that life and and maybe that's one of the the things about the world as it is today with, you know, the state of the world and that it's in is that there's so much suffering. I mean, there always has been, right. But it's more and more evident, I think, to all of us, yeah. uh, right. That things are not as they should be and that things that are happening in the world are, are in desperate need of prayer and of people. Right. And I think you, you use the phrase in one of your, um, either your book, it might've been one of your podcasts about being a love warrior, mm -hmm. which I love that phrase, that idea of like, you know, again, warriors and lovers don't seem to right mesh, but in the mystic, right them they literally are the same person um yeah so balance right the warrior spirit the lover yes i know it's life. all those paradoxes that's that's the tough part is living in the tension you know and again that's i feel like one of the underlying themes with longing and the already but not yet and learning what it is to balance um I don't know. How do we find that sweet spot, or as T.S. Eliot calls it, the still point of the turning world, you know, that intersection point between the spiritual and the material, the vertical, the horizontal, the one and the many, you know, these just fundamental tension points of reality. But that's that's where the spark is. That's where the life is. And perhaps the disappointing news is it's never going to be fully resolved. But the exciting part is that's that's the whole game you know that's the whole <laughs> dance that's the perichoresis that's where it all happens and it might be a little bit uncomfortable now because we need to be stretched wider like it's too big we can't contain all that jet fuel mm -hmm. but it's something that's so powerful because it's you know trying to stretch open enough space in us to receive more and more and more and more right beautiful yeah um Maybe last question. Um, in terms of like, you know, I think sometimes people wonder or think about like, you know, am I a mystic? Am I called to that? What is that? Maybe they're interested in it. Maybe it's something that's um, that they know something about, but they're interested in more. Um, what's the one quality um, that you would say would kind of define somebody who's mm. like on the mystical path or is on their way to becoming one, even if they don't know it, let's say? <laughs> mm -hmm. I think two, those two qualities yep. that we've been talking about here are both longing and detachment. Hmm. Longing, show, like, because that longing is not just something that we came up with on our own. Like, it's something that's been planted in our heart and is part of the divine longing in us, you know? So that's already part of divine union. It's not just leading you towards it. It's part of God already being in you. You know, so that's something that it's like, if you feel this longing towards this unnameable something, like that's, that's already the beginning of the path. Like you're already on it. Like keep yeah. searching, follow it. And then that other, the, the detachment, you might also speak of it as liminality, like living mm. in those liminal spaces, but being okay living there, you know, right. as you, as you learn to adapt that receptive stance that that fiat where you just say i'm going to accept what life is sending me um that allows you to live with so much more freedom and detachment where you say like i don't know like it's just remarkable to me how much it can change your your day-to-day -day 
quality of life even, you know, when you're able to just like not get so angry at the world or so anxious or have such intense responses to things or I like to call double reactions, you know, when we're not just anxious, but we're anxious about being anxious, you know, or depressed mm-hmm. about being depressed. But I can just say like, okay, I'm feeling anxious today. Like, this is rather uncomfortable. How am I going to live with this? Like, do I just need to go binge watch Netflix? Like, sometimes that's okay. You know, <laughs> like, if I'm doing that, like 48 hours a week, well, maybe not. But, you know, like, if I need that to just get my body to calm down enough to be present, okay, that's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, and so being able to have that open handedness, that freedom, I think is one very um, telltale sign that someone is growing spiritually and probably has got some uh, mystical intuitions. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been fun um, being on the um, opposite end of the podcast. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. It's a yeah. joy. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to our next conversation as we continue to dive into some of these themes. I, I do too.